Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. Today's episode is called, Is the Chinese Snowball Getting Bigger? It's been a big ride for Chinese property over the last 15 plus years. It's been a rising tide that's lifted many boats. However, it looks like the tide is now turning. Cracks are now appearing everywhere in the economy, from increasingly soft economic data to country gardens missed payments on international bonds uh, and capital raising this week, then to Evergrande's resumption of trade as the most indebted property company on the planet, being just a fraction of the size that it once was. Are we at a tipping point? Join us today to find out more. Today, as always, we have Nucleus Wealth's co-founder and Chief Investment Officer, Damien Klassen. Damo, welcome. Hey, Sam. How are you going? Good, thanks. My name's Sam Kerr. I'm the Senior Financial Advisor at Nucleus Wealth. Just a quick reminder, this podcast is general advice only and not specific to your personal situation. If you do want to discuss your personal financial situation, please go to our website at nucleuswealth.com forward slash contact. We are live every Thursday at 12.30 Australian Eastern Time. So jump on the Nucleus Wealth YouTube channel and you can ask any questions that come to mind and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. We are also available on all other major podcast platforms, so have a listen there if you prefer. Just want to give a quick shout out to the Nucleus Wealth team. Uh, we were the winners for the Innovation Awards at the IMAP uh, presentation last week. Uh, so, yeah, well done, Damien, uh, Abby, Shelley, uh, everyone at the team. So, yeah, just want to give a quick plug to the team there. And uh, thanks to IMAP for choosing us as the winners. So uh, uh, that's all the intros uh, for the for today. So Damien, over to you. Yeah, sure. So um, <clears throat> look, it's been um, I know we've done a lot of China episodes, and and and, and um, part of the reason is because we really genuinely think this is this is one of the the, the key things, especially for Australian investors, that you need to look at. And there's been a lot of data come out over the last week and a half two weeks um all sort of pointing in the one direction and we just sort of wanted to run through and, and i guess probably do a bit bit of a more bit more of a big picture just sort of look down in terms of um you know it's it's easy to see sort of your everyday negativity and, and then the flip side is um you know positive announcements from um uh or, or certainly announcements from from the chinese um about what they what they're doing to try and uh, stave off and so i wanted to really give sort of this big picture view about okay what are we looking for what are the actual announcements that are going to make a difference um so we had a few announcements in the last sort of week or two which is um i don't know things like uh cuts in the stamp duty on shares you know it's like well that that's not doing anything you know the trying to get people to do some more trading on on stock exchanges is not is not solving any of the underlying problems and so um yes yeah, so i wanted to dig into that a bit more about what are the types of announcements you really should be looking for that are actually going to move the needle in terms of this and then what are the yeah so that big picture view about um uh, yeah what's what's going on and, and where the issues are so um i'll start with the the chinese property sector which is really where most of these issues are, are around and and the idea we have is this uh well the analogy we're sort of putting is that it's, it's actually really hard to, to, to predict when an avalanche exactly when an avalanche will occur so you can you can see when things are uh are starting to get close like you can see when things are ripe 
for, 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 an, for an avalanche. So lots of snow build up, you know, certain weather conditions and all that type of stuff like that. And you, and you can go, okay, there's a, there's a, we're, we're at the phase where, where this is possible, but the actual, you know, what's the actual thing that actually causes it and when it occurs can, can often last longer than, than what you expect. And arguably um, for the Chinese property sector, we've been there for, for a decade or so in terms of going, there's all these imbalances, actually it's probably, and, and they actually probably were raised even longer than that. Um, so 2006, 2007, we saw China starting to raise the issues themselves about, about an unbalanced economy. And so, uh, yeah, the real question with all this is 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 why now and 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 are we actually hitting a point um where it's now you know the avalanche is going to cause now or is it just going to we're just going to see a, a further build up before before we finally get a, a resolution at some point and so yeah so we'll dig a little bit more into that as, as we go through as well so so chinese property is effectively now that the largest asset class in the world um there's 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 two parts to it though uh one part is the whole can you go through a financial crisis like we saw uh, back in um, you know, the mid two thousands, where you know pretty much around the world, but um, you know avoiding China notably at that point, where you see you know over indebtedness, uh, falls in property prices, then that puts people underwater, and and then you get this snowballing effect of where people are then forced sellers, and and you know and, and you go through these financial crises. Um, as you're trying to work out who owes who and, and all that type of stuff. Now, now that's um, a potential to, to happen. It's, it's sort of not, we're not going to say that's, that's, that's not the case, but it's uh, the odds are a little bit less in, in given the way China's looking to deal with this. Um, and, and again, I'll, I'll sort of come back to that in a little bit more detail later. But, but the key part I wanted to focus on is just because you don't go through a prices, a big prices sort of sudden drop, like if it's just a long, slow one, um, there's another part to it which is quite different. Um, well, not quite different. Sorry, I should should say it differently. Uh, it, it's it's a lot bigger in China than what we saw in the financial crisis, and a lot of this is this the idea of the construction sector. And so, yes, we had a lot of overbuilding in the US and Spain and other places um, during um, uh, during the and before the financial crisis, which sort of came unstuck. China's in another leg again. Like the proportion they've been spending in terms of construction uh, as a percentage of their economy is just uh, at levels we've never seen before. And uh, Australia in particular is very much leveraged to the construction part. So if you go through this, if you go through a prices crash, um, yes, construction is, is going to be affected. That, that'll happen. Like prices will crash, people stop building things, developers will, um, you know, don't want to build stuff that's that's now, uh, you know, the cost of building will be, more expensive than what what um what it is just to, to give up on the project but um <clears throat> it doesn't necessarily work the other way that if prices hold up that construction will also hold up there's a part where there's you know there's a path where you go um yeah the, china does everything it can to make sure they're not going into this big property crash and you get this sort of slow deflation of prices but at the same time you could still have construction falling away and that's a huge deal for australia in terms of how that um, and commodity prices in particular, so the, so the Chinese um, house uh, construction sector is is effectively the largest consumer of of most commodities um, around the world. So if they're going through problems, then then you know that's generally would say that that um, you're looking at problems for the for uh, for most commodities. So I'm going to start with the property developers. Uh, we've seen you know Evergrande is one of the big names that's sort of been through this rolling um, bankruptcy process where uh, it's been years where they're basically just getting, they're getting propped up and, and 
in, in any, any other economy, uh, Evergrande probably would have gone bust, you know, three or four years ago when, and, you know, you would have seen what the fallout is and then you would have moved on to the next one. And whereas it's been propped up and kept alive, it's still sort of producing projects, but but much more slowly than what it used to. And it's, it's effectively an extend and pretend that, that, that it's just been fed enough debt to, um, to make sure it doesn't go under. <coughs> uh they're sort of they're trying desperately not to um and fed enough debt so they don't default generally on their local bonds more than happy to default on on foreign um bondholders though so then then in um country garden which you know has been looking similar problems for for a while but that's sort of broken out in the last few weeks is a country garden starting to look at defaulting and 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 starting to run into some some problems um and i guess the main thing i wanted to highlight was i've, I've got a few um <clears throat> i've got a few slides up of of just different uh, numbers here. And we've spoken about these stats uh, before on the podcast, but but Country Garden and Evergrande, they're, they're not outliers. It's not like um, you've got this big property development sector in, and when I say big, it's massive property development sector in, in China, which is sort of bigger than the property development sector of the rest of the world combined. Um, it's not like you've got this big sector where there's like two bad players and everyone else is pretty good and, and you know, they'll, they'll all sort of wash out. When you look through the statistics, Evergrande and Country Garden are just just one of the um, of the usual companies. Like they, you look at the, the amount of debt they have, and and you know I think if you flip it back around and look at it a different way, for every dollar of um, market cap that these guys have, they've they've got almost ten dollars of debt. Um, whereas in the US, it's it's like seven for every dollar of market cap, you've got like seven cents of debt. Like there's just a it's, a, it's a, the amount of debt is 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 mind boggling in that sense, and that's that's what the debt we know about. Uh, then when you look at inventories, they've got like two or three years worth of inventories sort of sitting on their books that they need to sell still. Um, whereas, you know, a, a US home builder would have less than a year. Um, then you look at the unearned income, which is basically um, where they've been paid for properties to be built, um, but it's not yet built. And, and that's like another year, year and a half worth of sales um, that they've got that they've you know, effectively already received the money and, and still have to go and build these things. Uh, and then you look at the, what they owe to suppliers, what they owe to employees, and you sort of add them all up. And and on average, they're, they're six months late on on paying um, bills. You know, Evergrande's probably more like a year and a half. Um, but it's um, the you know Evergrande. When you look at these uh, these charts, you'll you'll see that Evergrande and Country Garden are they're just not they're just not outliers. They're just, just so every single company you could make the same argument for. And so, so demo, demo, you're saying they're not outliers, which hmm. looking at those charts, yeah, that that's true. But hmm. I mean, the, what's the scale of Evergreen, uh, Evergrande, and Country Garden compared to the rest of them? Are they are they two of the biggest, or are they are they all these just huge companies in the same boat of indebtedness, or um, what's the sort of scale? I've, I've, I've ranked them by the size of the market cap plus the debt. So um, I think if you rank them by the number by the number of houses produced in the last year, I think Country Garden ends up at, at number one or two. Uh, so these are similar size companies. Evergrande was definitely bigger than the rest of them. Um, Country Garden is is sort of top ten, but it, but um, it's not. You know, depending on, as I said, you measure it in a whole bunch of different ways, but but I'd say, yeah, Country Garden's top 10. Evergrande's, you know, pre-crisis, you know, relatively clear number one, but but not, it's not like a double the size of the other ones. It's, you know, 30, 40% bigger than, than some of these other ones. Um, and, and there's there's plenty of others that could easily, you could easily say are, are, are bankrupt as well. So so yeah. from my 
Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, well, just the, there's a huge amount of companies there, and they're all massive companies. So, mm. yeah, it just gives you an indication of just the scale of the problem. Yeah, that's right. And it's and it's effectively too big to fail, which is what effectively what markets have been saying. I think in a way is that look, this problem's so big that there's no way the Chinese government can let the thing fall over. So they'll probably have to stimulate, and so therefore, you know, we can keep iron ore at $110 or, you know, whatever it is. We can we can basically make the assumption these things are not going to make it because it's hard to imagine a world where they don't. Um, and and so there's, I think there's a little bit of truth to that in terms of it's, yeah, it, but they're also too big to bail out now. Like the, the, the debt problem has got so big that if you wanted to go back to the old way of doing things, um, by my calculations, you're going to need the biggest stimulus of all time, like in the entire history of the world, into a country that has already built more than any other country has ever done on on both infrastructure and um, and construction. So, you know, there there it's possible that happens. It just seems very unlikely that that's the way. And and, and it seems governments uh, China is certainly very seems to be um, loath to do that with with good reason. But but maybe they'll get to the point where they're just like, well, this is too much trouble. Kick the can down the road a little bit further. Yeah, I mean, that that's what they've been doing to date, but maybe it's got to that point where it's just so big that, you know, yeah. whatever they do, it's it's maybe not going to make that much of a difference. Yeah, and, and, and in a way, this is we're up to the fourth time they've had a go, so um, I'm trying to slow this down. So, And every time it, it slows down, um, they've then sort of, you know, they've seen growth slowing and, and they've panicked a bit and, and, and sort of just thrown more, you know, kicked that can down and, and thrown more debt at the problem. So, um, I mean, the last, I guess the, the most recent couple of ones, though, uh, well, the last two times they've, they've had the slowdown, you know, the 2015, um, that was where they were, they were genuinely worried about how how quickly things were slowing and, and, they, and they threw more money at, at the problem and sort of reignited a lot of that, those issues. Um, I do think in 2019, they were, they were a lot more genuine about it. They put on those three red lines. There's a lot of stuff about properties for living in, not for speculation, and, and, and a lot of factors around that. And then we hit COVID. And so I do think to a, to a certain extent, they were already pretty fixed on the whole 2019. No, no, we genuinely need to fix this problem now. It's got too big. We, we have to we have to rein it in. And then COVID happened. It was like, well, okay, let's solve it later. And, and now it's later. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the comparison to the US home builders, I mean, that, that says it all right there. Mm. Yeah, they're just, it's chalk and cheese. To yeah. how you're looking at it so so what does that mean for for chinese home builders well you know certainly you wouldn't be investing in them um and, and doubly so if you're um if you don't live in the country uh as i said they're they're more than happy to default on foreign um debt holdings uh it's the local ones that, where there's you know the, the question about whether they keep keep things ticking along and so it's pure, purely for political reasons um and uh and uh, if you look through the um, yeah, so, so if you look at these companies, my take is they're they're effectively utilities at this point. Like you're you're government backed, you know, not in, not explicitly, but but implicitly, and they're just going to keep drip feeding enough debt to keep finishing the, the properties they've got. And the problem with the properties they've got is is you look at this some some in some ways you look at those charts and you go, well, just a minute, they've got all these inventories and they've got all these uns, they've received all these prepayments, then that actually isn't are we looking basically at the same thing? Um, and you go, well. Unfortunately, no. Uh, well, to a certain extent, yes, but 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 for the most part, no. It's the part where you're going, okay, I've got 400 apartments I'm building. I've pre-sold 150 of them and received the full amount up front, um, and, and I've still got 250 to go. And so the problem is I build 
I build the 400 apartments, 150 of them are already sold. Great. I can finally get rid of that liability and, and, and those guys are off. But if I'm now sitting on 250 unfinished apartments, sorry, recently finished apartments in a market that's, that's finding it very tough to sell these, that's where the, the, the problem is, is that um, it's the distribution. Is it, um, and, and ideally what I do is I take those 150 people and I go, Hey, how about I give you a different apartment that I've already finished over here? You know, I give you some, something somewhere else because, um, you know, I've already built these apartments. I can't sell these ones and, and, I, and I haven't built yours yet. And so why don't I just give you that? And they've been trying to do that, but it's been difficult because generally speaking, um, people want the one they paid for. <laughs> I paid you to live here and, and I don't want you to build, you know, I don't want to take the one somewhere else that you've already built. So, um, yeah, so there's definitely a distribution issue there. Um, when you look at the property sales within China, uh, so if you want to look at the latest stats that, that's out, um, so this one's up to, to, to a week ago. Um, there's just a, a 30 city, which is a top top 30 cities, um, a uh, yeah, Goldman Sachs series that they, they run. And so basically um, what we can see is it down about 30% on, on last year so far. So it's a red line um, sort of mapped out across versus the, the prior uh, years because you, you do get a bit of seasonality around things like um, uh, Chinese New Year and, and, and Golden Week and, and other factors like that. Uh, but, yeah, the, the, I guess the, the message is it's considerably lower than what it's been over the last couple of years and it doesn't look like there's any, certainly no imminent signs of, of that turning around. Um, so, so, yeah, sales are still struggling. Um, if you one of the other issues you've got is that there's different tiers of cities um and that that, that top the chart we're seeing the first chart we're seeing was that that's generally the top tier cities uh i've got another sort of three set of three charts which is showing the the tier one versus the tier two versus the tier three and the issue is some of these smaller cities the tier two and tier three cities uh that's where we're seeing some real um uh, we've seen a lot of the real pain has been happening in that. So their, their property sales in, in both those cities are down by, yeah, they're, they're about a third of what they were um, sort of prior to, to COVID. Uh, in the tier one cities, things had held up for a little while. Um, however, the last couple of months have actually looked pretty ordinary in tier one cities as well. And that's a pretty bad sign. If, you, if that sort of extends, then... Um, uh, that's a that's a sign that yeah we're getting the crisis will the, the, certainly the property price we're into the, the potential for property price crash um, as well as um, uh, property construction sort of crash and something like so a, a, um, a developer like Country Garden this is part of their issue is that they've built a lot in the tier two and tier three cities and so what they what they're finding is that um, yeah they've built all these properties and they've sold all these properties in tier one, tier two and tier three cities but there's just not the demand there for it. And um, uh, yeah, and, and keep in mind as well, like when we're saying tier two and tier three cities, these are pretty big cities relative to the rest of the world. So, um, you know, your tier one cities are your, your Beijings and Shanghai's and, and things like that with sort of 10 million people plus. Um, you know, a lot of the tier two cities are probably bigger than, uh, you know, I don't know, two or three million people at least. And then, um, you know, even your tier three cities, a lot of those will have a million people plus. So. Yeah, Damo, we've we've had a few comments and questions coming through. Uh, mm. So from uh, Scott Curtis, uh, he is saying, uh, we know it's a deliberately manufactured bubble. Debt is the issue. 
Uh, mm. International debt can be ignored. Most of it is internal. Can this be restructured, socialized, or written off? And I mean, uh, do you agree that it's a manufactured bubble? Yes, absolutely. And, and yes, it can be. It can be. Um, that will, it's probably actually uh, hands probably in the wrong word. It will be. It will be switched around and 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 hidden and tried to tried to be written off. Uh, and this is exactly what Japan did effectively in the when they had their um, you know crisis and, and lost decades um, uh, you know twenty years ago. It was very much about saying, okay, we've got all these, we've got all this over indebtedness. Let's try and get the healthy companies to buy the unhealthy ones and saddle everyone up with debt, and and then um, you know, I guess take the long and slow way out of it. China did the same things themselves, um, except that back in the nineties, except they uh, so they had a property price bubble and crash back then. Uh, they're a lot smaller, obviously, um, and effectively they bundled everything into what's called a bad bank. So basically, you take you pay, you take all your your loans and you you create a bad bank, which is where all the bad stuff sits, and, and then you, you you put all the good stuff in the good bank, and then you tell the good bank, okay, you can go back being a, a normal bank, and and you know you go go do your lending, and and because other, otherwise, if you've got yeah, if you've got two banks and they're both of uncertain, um, well, maybe put it another way, if you've got ten banks and they're all sort of got you know ten percent bad bad loans in there. And then the, none of them are doing lending because they've all got these big bad loans, and they're trying to be quite conservative in case the whole thing blows up. And they're, so they're being, you know, they're slowing the entire economy down by by not lending. Whereas if you, you took all ten percent of all their assets, put them into one, and then said, okay, guys, get back out and start, and start lending. That's effectively what you're doing with a bad bank. Um, the, you'll certainly have some of that happening. Uh, I think the issue they've got at the moment is, you know, ideally you just let a lot of these. If 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 you were if they hadn't done so much pre-sales. You probably just let all, all these developers fall over, but the problem they've got is they've done so much in the way of these pre-sales and literally millions of these properties that have been paid for but never built that um, the the impact of of letting them all fall over would be pretty devastating on on um, uh, you know, all the people that have that have paid for these upfront. And you know we've already seen some some revolts in terms of people saying, "Well, I'm not going to pay my mortgage anymore. I've been paying it for three years and the property's not built, so I'm gonna, I'm not going to pay my mortgage." Um, and so, yeah. So, so I think there's elements there where, um, yeah, you, you will go through all those. You're saying you restructure it, you'll socialize it, you'll write it off. You'll the, the 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 central government has got a fair bit of room to to take on more debt. They'll transfer across, but the the size is just so big that I think you're very much going to end up with a a Japanese type situation, which is just very long and slow growth. You you have to you have to pay for it somehow. You can either pay for it in a short sharp. You know, you go through these recessions. Everyone takes these massive write downs, and it really hurts for 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 a year or two, like um, say Iceland did during the financial crisis, or you can go the long drawn out version, like Japan did, or, or say what we saw in Greece during the financial crisis, where you know unemployment over there is still really high. So um, yeah, short and sharp, or um, or long and slow, and, and China looks very much on the, the long and slow path. Okay, uh, nice one. And so we've we've also got a couple more questions coming through. Uh, so one, an, another comment from uh, from Scott uh, saying China used infrastructure and buildings to build economic activity fueled by debt, often with a long term return, less than the debt debt cost and build friction cost. Do you do you think that's fair? Yeah. So so it wasn't that way at the start. So at the start, that wasn't the case. You know, you build you build a bridge and. Right, and I've got a few charts I'll, I'll show you later. We'll move on to infrastructure. Actually, I think it might even be some of the next ones. Um, we'll move on to some of the infrastructure. Um, but um, yeah, it's uh, the longer you go on, you know, 
I think bridges are the best way to explain it. The first bridge across a river saves you, you know, hours of transit time, and the second one, you know, relieves um, the, the the flow on the first one and and, and helps. And but by, by the time you get the tenth or fifteenth bridge across the same river, um, you know, the economic impact is is getting pretty negligible. But the cost is the same, uh, you know, or possibly even more. Possibly you've even built up your city a bit more, so you're spending more to build this your 10th or 15th bridge across the river than, than what you did to build the first one for a much, much lower return on, on, um, yeah. On it. So, yes. Um, okay, we'll just, we'll just do one more quickly and then we'll move on. Uh, one from Christian uh, saying, high debt ratios, but how does a household and developer debt service ratio look? Is it falling or increasing? <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, uh the 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 debt the developer one um you know questions about what you what you, you um you know, there's lots of questions about the stats um because i've sh what i showed as well what i showed there's 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 guaranteed to be off balance sheet things going on as well so um i think the best case uh, and what i mean by off balance sheet is is other guarantees and some of the things that look like assets are actually got all these debts underneath it so so similar to what we saw with say Orco or Babcock and Brown when we saw the financial crisis is that somebody goes, oh, you know, I've got this $50 asset. And you, and when you look at the balance sheet, you're like, oh, great, $50 asset. That's really helpful. Um, but actually what it is, it isn't a $50 asset. It's something that's got um, $1,000. It's a $1,000 asset with $950 worth of debt behind it. And so, you know, when you separate it back out, all of a sudden the leverage on your balance sheet is way, way bigger than what you thought it was. Because, you know, it goes from you looking at the balance sheet going, oh, all I've got is an asset to, oh, actually, no, I've actually got a, a really big asset, but I've actually got crack loads of debt behind it. And if that asset falls by 10%, well, all of a sudden, you know, that um, the $50 assets turn into a $50 liability um, with, with not a very big fall. Um, okay, so, uh, so, the debt service ratios for the property developers are generally getting worse depending upon how you want to measure it. But basically what's happening is the debts are, are, are shrinking a little bit um, as they're as sort of getting paid down and, and, and rolled over. Um, but at the same time, their sales have been falling quite quite substantially uh, as we were showing on some of those charts. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, uh, hasn't yeah, it's been tough. Oh, the other thing is your, your borrowing costs if you do have to borrow. So I've got a chart um, up. It's a good lead into this next chart. This is your, your high yield credit spreads for property um, in China. So, uh, and just to put this in context, because it is a little bit hard to read this, um, it's in basis points, but basically that means if you've got Chinese high yield credit, um, it's 50% interest. So, yeah. You know. <laughs> but that, that's, it's priced as, uh, basically what it's saying, this is buying debt that's already out there. No, developers aren't issuing they're not out there saying okay i need to borrow a hundred dollars and i'll pay 50 percent interest no what's happened is that they they borrowed a hundred dollars five years ago and they were paying 10 percent interest at the time so they're paying ten dollars and now the, the value of that debt has fallen to like twenty dollars so so you know if you want to buy that debt that was issued at a hundred dollars you can buy it for twenty dollars in theory the company's meant to pay you back you know a hundred dollars at the end of it but um they ain't paying that back yeah, is, is, what that, is what that's basically <laughs> saying. And so if, if you can get two years' worth of interest payments, you're like, oh, I'm done. You know, I've got my money back. So um, it's, a, it's a big F. Yeah, that's right. So um, it's, uh, yeah, that's that's where. So uh, in terms of household debt service ratios, um, they're getting better. They're getting better. We are seeing uh, interest rates fall. 
Uh, but I'll, I'll move on to that. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in, in the later section of financial repression. Uh, okay, so so that's our property developer stats. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the macro stats. So so that's sort of from the bottom up and looking at what's going on with these property developers. If you look at the big sort of picture stats that we get out of China, um, uh, the, the housing starts have fallen quite dramatically. So um, in terms of billions of square meters, um, you're into um, yeah, one point, it was over 1.5 billion square meters of starts. Um, per annum that they're looking at. And now that's that's about half that now um, based on the official numbers. The big problem is the official numbers don't add up. <laughs> when you, There's like billions of square meters of property missing. There's all there's, there's a whole bunch of problems with it. Um, but one, we've sort of done it a different way where we've basically imputed the net starts. We've basically said, okay, well, let's say the, they give us all these different numbers. And let's say that the, the amount under construction is correct. And let's say the amount of property being start, uh, being completed is correct. Um, then what does that imply that the, the number of net starts must be? And that basically, you know, halves that number again. Um, and it's been getting, like the, the gap between those two estimates has been getting worse over the last sort of 10 years. Basically, where as as we've started to feel like, yeah, that that data is being, or the, the stats are being duped, um, that sort of matches up to that and and sort of catches those sort of missing, missing data. Um, the flip side as well with that one is, so, um, you know, if you looked at the amount of con under construction, it's like nine years worth of, and, and the rate they're completing properties at the moment, it's like nine years before they're going to finish like just the stuff they've got in train at the moment. And that's not right. Like that's, it doesn't take long to build a, it takes a lot shorter in, in China than what it does in, in a Western country to build an apartment. So, you know, from, from the day they actually genuinely start, you know, there's, there's probably two, two or three years, whereas um, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, ones in in Western countries will be more like three to five years for these for these high rise, um, and so what that's saying as well is, it's just with all the macro stats, we just know there's um, there's so many duke numbers in, in there, and that there's a lot of property that's that's been started notionally that'll just never be finished, and um, and they're just not building. So so yeah, so it's it is hard to tell i think that i think the trends are instructive in terms of being yeah the, whatever the starts have been they're, they're down you know since since basically all the covid stimulus stopped um they're down 50 to 75 percent in terms of the amount of new starts um the completions are still happening at a pretty steady rate so so that's what what actually is going you know what's going into the um uh well that, that's sort of telling you what, what commodities are being used in terms of that, that's sort of fading. Oh, it's, it's fading off, but it's, it's still going not too not too badly. And the question is, when does that run out? And um, I think from the macro stats, uh, it you know, no, notionally it's nine years, but it's not going to be nine years. Um, it's very hard to tell, really. It's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a guess as to to when. And 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 that comes back to my theory that these these guys are now just utilities, and, and gradually the 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 basically the Chinese government just wants them to finish what they've paid for, what the people have paid for, and then they'll let them go broke after that. So. Yeah, and Damo, you know, we've talked a lot about the discrepancies in the numbers. Mm. You know, do you think this is coming? Like, where where's the distortion coming from? Is it coming from the developers, or is it coming from the government level? And you know, why why do you think they're distorting this data? Like, is is the problem that big that they have to cover it up, or what? What do yeah. you attribute that to? Yes, a little bit. Um, so uh, some of it's saving face, but I think I think there's a there's a reasonable chunk of it which is um, people have been given 
KPIs in terms of saying you need to produce so much GDP from your from your province. And property has been one of the key ways of producing GDP. And so, um, uh, you know, it's, it's quite it's quite easy. It's quite easy. You know, you might have just started a new apartment building. You know, there's a few million dollars worth of GDP that I can I can add to my my um, you know my 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 regional gdp figure now that may or may not be real you know that's the fact that we started these ones and i can i can pretend that we've built a lot more than what we've built or whatever it is but basically i can pad my stats and so i do think there's a there's a lot of that um it's basically that problem is whatever you start to measure um people will try and dodgy it up so so you know my example i've, I've used a lot in the past is that i don't i don't care what my contribution to gdp is you know i'm if I'm not out there trying to 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 dodge up my books to make sure that my contribution to GDP looks good. Um, I might be, you know, if, if for listed companies, they're trying to make their EPS look good, they're trying to make their balance sheet look good. They'll be they'll be playing around with their figures to try and make the, all those numbers good, look good because that's what they get measured on. Um, whereas in China, the local officials get measured on GDP, and so that's what they're trying to make look good. And so they'll they'll have a, a thousand little tricks, and property sector is always good for these types of things to um, yeah, big numbers. You know, it's, um, it's not very transparent, so it's easy to sort of try and hide what's going on. Okay, great. We're just going to go to a quick sales message. We'll be back with the Investment Insights very shortly. Nucleus Wealth is an active and passive investment manager. If you like what you're hearing and want some help with the investing, we can do it for you via our active portfolios. Our tactical and core portfolios use the insights shared in this podcast to construct and manage your investment. We blend tactical portfolios to offer our combinations of international shares, Australian shares, government bonds, and cash. We vary the asset allocation with the goal of protecting your capital in times of market uncertainty. We also have active international and Australian share portfolios. These are chosen using our quality and value investment philosophy. You can find out more at NucleusWealth.com. Now back to the show. Okay, so your next question is, can infrastructure save us? So uh, China's been spending a lot on infrastructure. So, th- so the average country spends about 5% of its GDP on infrastructure and that type of building. Um, China's been spending more like 20 for the last decade. Um, and they've been ramping it up in the last few years, trying to help this whole um, yeah, a stimulus because the property sector's slowing. They've been, been trying to spend more money on infrastructure. So the problem is they've already built a lot. Um, if you look at the amount they're spending on construction versus, say, Europe, um, uh, once it stops sort of building bridges to nowhere, you can halve the amount of construction and, and the amount that's going to spend on steel and copper and you know all these other types of things that go into that. So um, it's a it's a big issue, I guess. I guess the, the, in my view, they've already played that card. Um, there's a great example of this. Uh, I'm going to butcher the name, I'm sure. Uh, Guizhou, I think. Um, so it's basically one of the poorest states in China. It has um, the highest bridge in the world, and I think it's got 22 or 23 of the top 100 highest bridges in the world. Um, you know, it's basically an extremely poor state. You can see on this chart where um, in 2006, and actually if you went back a few years as well, they'd built a lot of bridges up to 2006, but basically they had a little bit over 600 bridges. Um, now they have three times as many bridges. Um, and you know, as you can see, it's accelerating. Um, they've got debt problems. They're going through these massive issues because um, they've been building so many bridges that, and 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 things like that 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 effectively not helping when you're a really poor state and you you, you know you're effectively um, 
mainly agricultural and and you know without a lot of uh, actual transport um that uh you know adding people more bridges to you know herd their goats along or whatever doesn't doesn't add a lot to gdp and so um i guess that's that's coming back to that you know there's a very classic japan was accused of building bridges to nowhere um was like a, a common line you'd, you'd use in terms of their infrastructure push when they're trying to um help stimulate their economy and and um yeah it looks like uh <laughs> greasy has taken that bridges to nowhere as a little bit more to heart than uh Perhaps yeah, people were intending to to use that. Um, and another way to look at it is this whole idea of infrastructure that the amount of lending. Um, actually, yeah, well, I probably won't dwell too much on that. But basically, that uh, I, I guess the message is that we had a record year last year. It looks like there's going to be another record year or closer record year this year for, in terms of spending. Um, it's very difficult to try and work out how they can do more. And the big risk as well on the infrastructure side is, for, from an Australian perspective or commodity price perspective, is the, the infrastructure has been a lot of sort of airports and railways and, and things like that, um, and a lot of them are underutilised. Uh, the issue is if China starts flipping more and more, which which appears to be the pattern, to, to spending money on things like um, semiconductor research or electric vehicle factories and, and things like that, they use a lot less steel, and the R and D behind that, you know, R and D is, is generally uses almost no commodities. Like it's a lot. That's a lot of people power you're spending money on. And so, um, I guess what I'm saying is, um, infrastructure. I don't think is coming to the rescue because it already has effectively come to the rescue, and, and it's going to be very difficult for them to do more on that front. Uh, then your next problem gets to your shadow banking system. So we have this. Uh, so Zhongron International has been um, having problems paying back its its um, or meeting its obligations. So the shadow banking system is is effectively where you can borrow money to um, uh, borrow money that they give to the, usually give to the property sector or, or or to local governments, which effectively are giving to the property sector as well. Uh, but it's not through a bank, and and this is where you see some uh, you know, quite often you see. Um, uh, before financial crises, you see the shadow banking sector rise quite significantly because regulations within the banking sector often, you know, restrict it from going as fast as what you know people would like, and so uh, and the banks themselves don't want to take on uh, as much risk. So so you know that the banking sector grows really quickly, but but not as fast as other people would like, and so then you end up with this shadow banking system that's that's effectively um, you know adding more leverage to the problem. And so uh, China is talking about. It looks like they're talking about sort of bailing out some of um, uh, uh, Zhong Rong, um, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's not not definite at the moment. Um, it does look as if that whole sector, if you actually did need to bail out that entire sector, it's a um, again, it's just such a massive amount of the economy. Um, you know, yes, it's possible, but it's just one more place they're going to end up having to spend money that's. That um, that they prefer not to, uh, you know. If I was in, if you're in a developed country, or sorry, a uh, a more open country, probably what I'd say, I'd say that, uh, and a more sort of democratic and and uh, not as much financial repression, I'd say that this is pretty similar to the, the initial phase of the financial crisis. So we the initial phase of the financial crisis in in the US, we had a lot of the shadow banking was done through these credit default obligations and and sort of packaged up mortgages. And that was where the problem really started, and we started to see these these um, these funds start to fall over. So anyone sort of seen 
some of those um you know big shorts and stuff like that as these as these funds started to fall over that was sort of the start of the whole thing and and it sort of led to the, to, to the rest of the crisis is that what's happening in china well probably not you know it could you know certainly if, if they if they let it go um so you're probably going to get a bailout from this but it's a it's a dangerous sort of game that you're playing is that you know we're going to we're going to have we're going to create the type of problem that that causes a financial crisis, and then we're going to keep sort of bailing these things out and 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 shifting money across and, and avoiding a financial crisis in that way. So um, yeah, things things can go wrong, but it's also a pretty good sign that even if they get it, you know, the best case for 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 China ends up with them looking a lot like Japan in this long, long, slow, um, you know, just very weak growth period. Uh, so that's your shadow banking one. So that's. Um, the next question is, you know, can consumers come to the rescue? And that was the hope earlier on this year. And that's that, I think that's where a lot of the disappointment, especially in recent times, has come out. So uh, we've seen you know, youth unemployment is, you know, well over 20%. Um, some people sort of estimate it could be even be double that. Um, uh, and, and China's basically seen that they've stopped publishing youth, youth data. So uh, similar with a number of other data, uh, data points they had, things like land sales and, and things like that, as the data gets worse and worse and worse, rather than sort of um, you know, sort of fronting up to the problem, they're basically just not, not publishing anymore. And, and that's a bit of a sign that, that China is very much struggling with this middle income trap, like they're, that they're, you know, the, the hope in China was that you'd follow the, more the path of, say, Japan or, or South Korea and less the path of somewhere like Russia or, or Cuba or someone who, who pushed this, or Brazil, who pushed this same sort of growth model, is that you, um, you, know, you repress household spending, you, you make everyone save, um, you give a lot of cheap money to companies and, and spend all this money on infrastructure, and that grows your economy really well. And then as your economy grows really well, um, then you eventually get this, the smarter jobs and, and then so everyone scales up. But the problem is, it looks like a lot of this youth unemployment is is, is around people who have been to university um, or at least have a degree and and are um, are really struggling to find jobs. Like they're basically coming out and, and going well. And, and there's a lot of talk in China about saying, "Well, you're just going to have to accept a factory job." And it's like, "Well, yes, you've done. You know, you, you had uh, you're the product of um, two sets of of single parent um, or sorry, single child households. So you have." You know, two grandparents on on both on each side, and, and one set of parents. So there's six adults, and and you're the only child, and they've taken the only child and sent them off to university, and, and then it's a lot of expectation, and now you've you're, you're being expected to go to a job that you didn't need to go to university for, and you've got to you know, at the same same education level as your parents or, or grandparents, and that's I think where a lot of the problem is that sort of showing that that's that's what's happening. They're also looking at deflation um, in in China, so so um, prices are going backwards there. And what it tends to happen with deflation is people delay purchases. So the idea is um, if you're seeing prices fall and, you know, I'm thinking about buying a new couch and, and prices are falling, well, maybe I'll wait another couple of months and prices will be even lower. Whereas um, in an inflationary period, um, you get the opposite happen where, you know, prices are rising. I better jump in now before the price rises kick in. And so, um, yeah, deflation's got to put you into a bit of a spiral in terms of consumer spending. Um, we've got terrible demographics. Um, and again, this is another area where that's the reported numbers of demographics. Demographics could be even way worse than what what we're saying. But you sort of add that together with the youth unemployment, and, you, and you're saying you know, you you people who generally spend a lot of money are your young young adults and, and people having families, and um, they're they're your big spenders in terms of an economy. And we've got you know massive levels of unemployment, 
and 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 really bad demographics where that that group as a whole is not is is, is very small and then they're not getting jobs and so that's that's sort of more bad signs for that that consumer and sort of signs that yeah the consumer's really just not going to come to the the rescue and the final one's a, a another sort of philosophical one or another sort of um behavioral finance one is that in the during covid what we saw in western countries was a lot of support for um for people who were not working um that didn't happen in china so in china there was very little transfers to um certainly no checks being sent out to people and and job keepers and things like that it was largely support for companies to, to keep people employed and so what does that mean you know in, in my mind if you're a um you know an average worker in a western economy what did you learn from COVID? actually the government's got my back um when when things got really tough you know they threw money at me and, and helped save me maybe i don't need as much savings you know maybe maybe my emergency fund can be a little bit smaller because if something goes wrong you know government's got my back got my bank whereas in china um i think you learned the opposite le lesson is that um if things go wrong then you gotta make sure you've got some savings and so uh you know, there's probably a, an element of people wanting to, to to build up some more savings and and, and meaning the consumer sector is not going to grow as much could the government come to the rescue and this is this is the big one and this is you see this come out and especially for if, if, if you're if you're a commodity bull um and um it comes out all the time and and the the basic logic is um effectively what, I, what i've been saying pretty similar to what i've been saying above but that they get it says things are so bad they're going to have to stimulate and they're going to have to spend more money on property um and that may be true i i, I don't think so and i don't think they can ever get back to similar levels but but yeah maybe maybe it's true um the issue is that is not what the government rescue stuff we've seen recently the government rescue stuff um that's come out so far has really been a damn squib um you know some of the things in there are, are you know i spoke about the stamp duty cuts in stamp duty on shares you know one of them had something about more food festivals um lots of lots more ways for people to get debt so basically saying you know is is the answer to this um you know we've got all these indebted property developers well maybe we can let um home buyers borrow more um you know and we've got all these empty properties and, and is the answer then well let's make it easier for 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 home buyers to, to to build to buy two or three properties rather than just one and um yeah it's so you're really just shuffling where the problem is and, and yeah maybe maybe you're easing it easing up the problem on a little bit on the on the property developers at the expense of making it worse for consumers so um yeah there's not a lot in terms of that and i'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this whole financial repression uh, after this message we'll be back again shortly if you like what you're hearing but want a low-cost passive option, Nucleus Wealth is the first to offer passive direct indexing in Australia. The first generation of passive investing was index funds. The next gen was ETFs. Now direct indexing is here with significantly more customization and control. The benefit of direct indexing is you can add or subtract investment themes, and we have almost 100 different options to choose from. For example, you could buy an international share direct index portfolio that excludes fossil fuels and arms manufacturers and has a tilt towards cybersecurity and cloud computing. Alternatively, you could buy a portfolio with no screens and an extra exposure to nuclear power and defense contractors. You can find out more at NucleusWealth.com. Now back to the show. John. So, yeah, so one, of, one of the things I wanted to hit off on as well is um, because I spoke at the outset about what are the announcements that are going to help and what are the announcements that are just going to sort of push things down the road for, for a bit, is that 
we've got into this problem or China's got into this problem because of financial repression. You hold down um, interest rates, you let companies borrow cheaply, um, you give them cheap capital and, and you effectively don't give the people who are lending the money, which is generally the household sector, enough of a return on that. And then, yeah, and then with the idea that those companies will create more jobs and then the people get wage rises and, you know, and that did work for initially, but um, I've got a chart just showing up that it product, you know, that you had 10 years of just fantastic productivity growth and then it really has stalled for the last 10 years. And that's been hidden by the amount of debt, extra debt that China's taken on. So, so you run this model, you get these great returns, and then you just start to you're spinning your wheels. And so you add more debt and you can keep, it looks like you're still going forward, but, um, uh, but really you've just started spinning your wheels and, and you're not going anywhere. And so I guess what I'm saying by this is when I say it can't be both a cause and a cure, a lot of the things they're looking to do are effectively um, more financial repression. So um, you're cutting interest rates, well, companies are the biggest borrowers in China and households are the biggest lenders. So if you cut interest rates, you're effectively helping companies at the expense of, of, of consumers. Uh, the Chinese currency has been falling as well, so um, which is great if you're an exporter in China. So, so again, company helps companies because it makes their products cheaper and, and better to compete in the rest of the world. The flip side is if, you, if you're a consumer in China, now your imports, uh, you know, the cost of you buying things from overseas has gone up. And so again, it's worse for consumers and 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 um, and better for companies. Now, uh, it is what they're going to have to do in a, to a certain extent. But but really, the um, the signs that uh, China is making a meaningful impact on 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 rebalancing is signs they're doing very large transfers from central governments and local governments across to to individuals, um, and that's just not happening. So and not even not 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 as happening, but it's not even suggested to be happening. So, um, you know, in the rumors you hear, um, the, the, you know, the, the best, um, you know, the, the best bullish rumors for, for commodities are not about rebalancing the economy. It's more about, um, oh, maybe they're going to kick the can down the road again. Um, and so, um, yeah, anyway, so I guess, well, yes, it's, it's the, the headline speaks for itself. You know, you can't, you can't use the, the things that got you into this problem to, to also get you out of the problem. Um, then I want to go, um, you know, can exports be the, be the issue? So I've just got a, a picture up here. Um, I'm sure most people have seen this one before of all these uh, e-bikes and, and uh, bike sharing that we had and sort of a lot of popped up in a lot of cities. And, and um, then you've just got these massive piles of unused bikes that sort of, that sort of ended up. Um, so, um, and then that was similar in China as well. Uh, it's interesting that, uh, so uh, that seems to be happening. And, and I guess this is a, well, look, Bloomberg's running this story, so it's, it's certainly credible from a credible source. Um, it's hard to know how big it is, but it seems to be happening a little bit in, in, in electric vehicles. So China is very much moved to the biggest, it's moved to become the biggest exporter of, exp of electric vehicles. And that seems to be its latest sort of push in terms of, um, you know, they're doing, giving lots of subsidies in terms of um, uh, to, to, to electric vehicle makers. And for anyone who's sort of listening in, there's... Um, you know, there's these pictures of just fields worth of cars that are all um, with like, uh, you know, weeds and everything growing out of them. There are all these EVs that were sort of built over the last few years. And a lot of these are, are EV companies that got all these subsidies and then, then subsequently went bust. Um, partly, partly because so many of these companies started up that it, that it is a little bit, you know, the winners of, um, of companies like BYDs and things like that. 
you, know, you started up 100 companies, the, the 10 big winners are now exporting to the rest of the world and the world's biggest exporters of, of electric vehicles. And the 100 or the, you know, the 50 companies that, that were at the bottom have all gone bust and, and the cars are sitting in, in fields and with weeds growing over them. So, um, yeah, I guess it's a little bit of a sign of China, as 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 you you know as you expect it. There's excesses. You, if the government hand is too heavy, then then you just get excesses. And and um, you know the the hope in China, I guess, is that you end up something similar to what we saw in the um, with solar solar panels, where China effectively subsidised solar panels to to such an extent that they became such a cheap cheap um, exporter that all the Western countries' solar panel manufacturers all went bust. And, and it looks like China's basically trying to do the same thing with um, electric vehicles. Now, uh, the problem China's got in terms of exports saving them is, is, is a couple. Um, one is that the rest of the world saw what happened in, in solar panels and they don't want it to happen again in other things. And so they're actively pushing back against these um, where China's effectively dumping um, you know, and, and subsidizing these to, to sort of um, you know, create almost quasi monopolies from a from a um, at least from a a uh, a country perspective, uh, and so so you're certainly getting pushed back on that, and that's what we're seeing a lot of that in terms of the Chips Acts and and Inflation Reduction Acts and everything from the, from the US. Uh, also, China is already such a massive uh, exporter into everywhere around the world is that uh, most other countries just don't have the capacity to take. Um, you know, masses and masses more of uh, more more Chinese goods, uh, and so you know, in terms of can exports come to the rescue? They can certainly help cushion the blow, but uh, the problem is just too big within China itself um, for exports to be, and China's too big relative to the rest of the world for for exports to be able to sort of save the economy through through that. And and I do think we're going to see some. Um, well, we're certainly seeing China export deflation, and you're seeing them flood the market with things like EVs, but you're going to see pushback in terms of um, you know, more tariffs or, or things to try and prevent China from doing the same thing in electric vehicles that, that they did in um, uh, solar panels. And that gives you that impossible trinity we've spoken about a few times. Um, so, so basically, if you're running an economy, you can do, um, you've got to give up on one of these factors. You can't have free capital flow you can't, and an ex fixed exchange rate and sovereign monetary policy. So, so what I mean by that, um, you know, to use an example of, of the EU. So within the EU, you've got a fixed fixed exchange rates. Everyone's on the everyone's on the euro. You've got free capital flow. You can put money back and forth within the EU as much as you want. But what what they've had to give up is sovereign monetary policy. No longer can you run monetary policy for Germany different to monetary policy for Spain or, or, or Greece. So um, yeah, you've got to give up something with those. Most um, countries go for, uh, uh, they give up on the fixed exchange rate and that's where Australia or the US, they basically want free capital flows and they want sovereign monetary policy and so they don't have a fixed exchange rate. China has sort of got a, a mix. They want the sovereign monetary policy the most and so that's what they've, that's the one they've, that they've grabbed um, and, and effectively the, the exchange rate and, and, the, and, the free capital, and the free capital flow are the ones which sort of bounce back and forth a bit. So there's a bit of free capital flow and then they'll crack down and there's a bit of, and it's sort of called a dirty float in sort of it's largely sort of pegged to the US dollar, but within certain ranges. And so, um, and, and this is the, the problem that China finds themselves in is that they, um, you know, a lot of the solutions they're looking for, they've got to start giving up some of these, um, some of these, and they, and they just can't. 
Okay, now we will go to our question of the week. Uh, so we'll take some viewer questions after this. But the question of the week, this is for viewers to have some discussion in the comment section over the coming days. The question for this week is, is China stimulus coming? So feel free to post your thoughts and engage with us and some of our other viewers over the coming days. Uh, so we've had a question from Jude. Uh, he's saying, I have a young son. I want to make, make small contributions over time to U.S., uh, or global ETF, not the ASX. Uh, does Nucleus have an equivalent product? And how could grandparents and I contribute over time? Uh, Damo, I think I'll take this one. Uh, so short answer is yes, we have the direct index product uh, for the global leaders. So that's up to the 75 largest companies in the developed world. Uh, it's fully customizable, so you can choose the number of stocks in the index uh, up to the 75 largest, like I mentioned. You can also have, uh, we also offer fractional shares, uh, so we can take very small contributions, so you can build them up over time. Uh, it's also very low cost, uh, so uh, the uh, ad, uh, the investment management fee is 0.17% per annum. Uh, there's an admin fee as well, so the total cost comes in at 0.38% per annum. So it's very low cost for international exposure. Uh, just to give you some contrast, you know, one of our main competitors, uh, iShares, their Global 100, uh, they come in at 0.40% per annum, their management expense ratio. So we're actually cheaper than iShares. And you've got the ability to customize. Uh, so you can, uh, as you would have heard in the sales message, we've got around 100 different screens and tilts. So you can exclude things from the index if you don't want to be involved in those certain sectors like fossil fuels uh, or human rights, for example. And you can also add in extra themes, um, some of the common ones, cybersecurity, cloud computing. There's lots on offer to choose from. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's I guess that's the short and long answer. And this is why we've won the Innovation Award uh, for IMAP, so the Institute of Managed Account Professionals. And we're the first to offer this direct indexing in Australia. Uh, so just just a little more on it, how it's different from a traditional ETF. Uh, normally you just own one security and you get that underlying exposure. But with direct indexing, you actually own all the securities in your personal name. And that's what gives you that ability to customize the index there. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's, that's sort of, uh, have I missed anything there, Damo? Nope, that's great. So let's, there's a few other questions we should jump to. Yes. Yes, so uh, Scott's, Scott's been very active today, asked lots of questions, which is great. Uh, so he's asking, how will the reduced demand for iron ore from China affect the Aussie economy? Uh, question around the WA state budget, the federal budget. Uh, how's it going to affect iron ore businesses and the general economy? Uh, and then he's also asking about the Aussie dollar compared to our trading partners. Um, and uh, will, you know, will Australia become a, a manufacturer uh, at least uh, in, at import replacement level. So there's lots of things to to unpack there. Yeah. Look. Look. I hope so. I hope on the on the manufacturing side. I hope so. Um, the the issue Australia had was effectively during the the last um, big mining boom boom we saw um, you know in the in the early two thousands is uh, we effectively sacrificed our entire manufacturing sector and and we saw that most. You know, the, the, I guess the highest profile was was how all the, the major car brands all left Australia. And so the issue was currency got so high, um, 
pushed by this massive resources boom, um, you know, taking all the employees and and giving lots of income to Australia, and and so but Australia basically said, well, we're going to sacrifice. You know, this thing's going to last for. 30, 40 years, and so we're going to sacrifice our entire manufacturing sector and this become a big a big quarry, and then promptly the whole thing fell over, you know, within a couple of years, and and, and now we're left without a manufacturing sector. So um, ideally, yes, um, you'd see that the Aussie dollar would fall. That would build up. The, the, danger, the biggest danger I see is sort of lack of um, uh, commitment, I guess, from, from the government, and, and in stark contrast to, to what we've seen in the US. So we've seen this... Um, Inflation Reduction Act and Chips Act in the US that really has sparked this massive capex boom and this real push to bring back manufacturing into the US. And it's it's you know a lot of it's around subsidies and and um, uh, and incentives for companies to do it within the US. But it's it's quite um, significant industrial policy they've embarked on. Uh, Australia seems to go down the path of hey, we'll make a few announcements and we'll 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 stick on a few extra TAFE courses and and hopefully everyone will come flooding to us. So um, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I worry. I, I think the the bigger picture is yes, we'll, we'll hopefully get down that path. Aussie dollar will fall. Um, we'll actually see less income coming through. But um, the flip side is we'll create more more export industries and 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 bring back more. Um, the big danger is uh, political leadership. So. Uh, from both parties have been sort of asleep at the wheel on that one. So, um, uh, what was the other, what were some of the other ones? Yeah. So, uh, Scott's also asking, I guess that sort of ties into this question. Uh, are there alternative economy building options available to China to, to try sort of rescue, rescue the economy yeah. over there? Yeah. Well, look, and, and actually, yeah, that, that does hit on something I should have mentioned that. Xi seems to very much have a philosophical view that you shouldn't give money straight to consumers. Uh, they're just going to waste it. If I give $1,000 to a person that they don't need, they're going to go and spend it on food and you know drink and song and all that type of stuff, and it's wasted. Whereas if I give that $1,000 to a business somewhere, um, yeah, they might go and build a bridge for me or a road or something. And even if I don't use it, well, at least, still, at least we got a bridge or a road out of it. I think that seems to be his, his basic philosophy. Now, that has to change and the the philosophy that um you know that the consumers shouldn't should never get to benefit from this um and and so yes yeah, so it needs to transfer more money to them um maybe maybe it could be in the form of safe, social uh, safety nets and things like that so for for, a com for what you'd you'd consider as a communist country or notionally purports to be a com communist country sort of sounds like everyone's all in together and everyone shares things um but there's really no social safety net to speak of and so um you know, having a much better social safety net would 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 probably help. Um, the issue there is the one-child policy turns that into a, a, quite a difficult proposition a few years down the track when you do the numbers. Um, but but I think those types of things. Um, uh, I mean, they're already trying to do more investment in terms of healthcare and and AI and and um, uh, you know electric vehicles and and these types of semi and semiconductors. The problem is, you know, the US is really putting the squeeze on them and saying, well, we're not going to let you get we're not going to let you steal all the latest technology. You'd have the old stuff, but not the new stuff. So, um, yeah, there are problems there, but but they're the types of announcements you want to see in China um, talking about transfers to consumers in, in some form. Um, might be just added social, social safety nets, you know, those types of factors that, that would be a positive. Okay, and another question, will China allow the renminbi to fall? Uh, well, it's... 
I think uh, the question is more whether other countries, how, how much other countries will let China, they're, they're an enemy fall in, in a way that, um, okay, so, so yes, China's got a lot more direct control over the Renembi, but um, it's an issue about trade. So let's say they halved the Renembi overnight and all of a sudden, um, you know, everything from China halves in price and China's trying to export way more. Is it effectively what the rest of the world then is saying is, okay, do I want my workers to go, um, do I want to, my workers and my businesses to, to go bankrupt or, and get fired in, in my country and we'll import all these cheap things from China? Uh, or do I actually want to try and keep some of these things in in my country? And, and actually, you know, I'm not going to let China subsidise to and 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 um, you know end up in the position of where we're wholly reliant upon them to do things. And then you get pandemics or other factors or even just political issues, and, and and we can't we can't get um, you know these goods. And so I do the, the problem you you will go through is there will be a lot more pushback. And China is now so big as a as an exporter, um, it, it's going to create massive issues, trade issues. We've already seen enough of them. So, uh, yeah, I, th I think they will try and do it as much as possible. And then it's a question about the pushback as from, from people in terms of um, how, um, how much is allowed to go on. Okay. And uh, we have got a question from Ben. Uh, he's asking, asking around, uh, you know, are other countries sort of going to be blocking EVs from China? You know, the US, there obviously uh, there's all sorts of tariffs there now. Um, um, but he also says, you know, seeing Western car companies have been pretty slow moving. So, you know, mm -hmm. how do you see that unfolding? Yeah. And also talking about, you know, the push to net zero. Yeah. I think is, you know, yeah. I think, I think that's what his question is, uh, is about there is saying, is about saying, you know, notionally, if we want to get to net zero, we need more electric vehicles. And so blocking them and, and, um, look, it's, it's a, um, which is partly probably why China's chosen one of these. This this is one of the new ones, and solar panels as well. You know, it's a question about saying, well, we're, we're just trying to help. You know, we're just trying to help by by pushing the prices down and helping it for everyone. And and in a way, from a from a you know from a planet perspective, yeah, they are. Um, but then it's 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 the thought process that Australia sort of went through for years and years and years before we gave up, which is, do we actually want to keep a local car manufacturing? Um, and partly for um, you know defense purposes and things like that. Is in the want capabilities that. If you're in a country, whatever country you're in, and, and you and you know you, you happen to go to war or whatever, you want to be able to know that you can make some of the core components, and, and you're not wholly reliant on other countries um, where you can get cut off from. And so, I think that's probably one element of the the um, the electric vehicle in particular. Um, but uh, but I think as well, given I can't remember what the stat is, but it's something like ninety percent of solar panels now come come from China, and uh, that I think. There are a lot of governments, especially now, solar has become a much bigger sort of way forward in terms of, and, and then when you look at the amount of new um, energy generation that's coming on, is that that's an unacceptable level of risk that for, for countries to say, well, do I want my entire energy system to be reliant on one country producing, or do I want to actually be able to do that myself? And that's that's long been the case with things like oil or or, or coal. And I think we'll see the same thing happening with solar. And that's where, yeah, we're moving on to EVs in, in a similar vein is that, um, yeah, I don't want to be wholly reliant on another country to produce the only form of transport that I have. Okay. Uh, so we're running a little over time today. So let's move on to the investment implications. Yes. Um, yep. I'll just run it up quickly. So I think I've spoken pretty much um, in, in these broad terms as well. But, yeah, you, you if you looked at sort of your bull case, your base case and your bear case, is, is your best case is that, Okay, I think we can get back to the old days of construction. Um, we're going to need the world's biggest ever bailout for um, for, for, 
property sector and developers and um you know from the country that's already spending more on construction and and infrastructure than anyone ever has as a proportion of gdp um so it's possible it just seems very unlikely to me um and i really haven't seen any announcements that, that are suggesting it's going that way but you know watch this space you can't can't say never um the base case i think is you're looking at quite a lot of stimulus um to avoid disaster all about just trying to keep this from from being a massive explosion and, or implosion and and more about to say managing a managed sort of decline in terms of the value of property and the amount of construction and um you really just get this this country that looks like a just a worse version of japan um and, and you know they're, they're looking at basically whatever you saw in japan and and they're sort of lost decades um you're looking at at the same in china but but with worse demographics lower income um more debt more spending on construction like you just well, yeah almost any facet is um china's in a worse position than japan was um in that and then your bear case which is growing more likely but you know i think it's not, it's not the base case it's, you know well it's obviously not the base case the basics you know but it, it seems to be that the proportion um the skew seems to be getting more and more towards the bear case and and, and less towards the bull case if things if, if you're going to pick a direction that, that it might go um is that you know the question is if, if the stimulus is not large enough or not fast enough so if they let things go too far where um and, and to a certain extent, I think it has in some elements, is that the psyche of people stops being that property will go up forever, property is safe, I can put all my money into property to actually, this property is a bit dodgy. Um, you know, I know all these people who who have who've paid for houses that haven't been built. You know, a lot of people have built, model, uh, you know, have um, bought multiple properties and now can't sell them and the prices are lower. And, you know, if, if it becomes this sort of spiral, then, um, uh, you know, it almost doesn't matter what the government does, um, that could get out of control on, on the downside. And so you're looking at that point, you know, certainly in terms of financial crisis, you know, a, a replay of what we saw, um, you know, in, in 2008, but but with just fewer links to the rest of the world, I mean, there's still a meaningful number of links, it'd still be, it'd still hurt. Um, uh, maybe it's more of a replay of the, the, the Asian crisis or something like that, where, where countries with lots of links to China suffer a lot. And countries with not that many links, um, you know, sort of sail through a bit a, a bit more easily. Um, but Australia certainly sits in in the in the case of a country with a lot of links into China. Excellent, uh, nice one, Damo. And uh, just to add to that as well, as listeners would have heard, uh, with our screens and tilts, a way that you can play this depending on if you're bearish or bullish, uh, you can add tilts or screens, so you could exclude uh materials are global materials and resources and or you could include that depending on which way you view it uh so that pretty much wraps us up today so thanks damo thanks for putting the show on and we look forward to the unfolding conversation thanks awesome uh, so, yeah, I just want to ask a favor. We really want to spread the message about transparency and integrity in investing. And at Nucleus Wealth, we live and breathe these values. And we'd really appreciate it if you can help us spread this message uh, simply by subscribing to our channel. That'll help us do that. So if you could hit the subscribe button now, that'd be most appreciated. And if you know of anyone that might get some value out of today's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you do share it with them as well. 
Uh, we do welcome your feedback on this podcast, especially in regards to suggestions for future topics. So if you do have any ideas, drop it in the comment section below or send us an email to contact at nucleuswealth.com. So for myself, Damien, and the rest of the team at Nucleus Wealth, thanks for watching and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.